Caves of Steel is a 1954 novel that describes a grim world where humans on Earth have retreated into cities. The eponymous Caves of Steel that allow a large population but keep mankind out of the sun in regimented hierarchical societies. It may sound like dystopia to you, but it was a practical solution to overpopulation in the mind of Isaac Asimov. The earliest book in Asimov's robot series, this novel is an approachable, breezy read where the detective novel meets science fiction 50 style. Do we even need to determine whether the novel that inspired the 2004 Will Smith blockbuster I, Robot is a classic? Well, let's crack open a tall can of Steel Reserve and find out. It probably doesn't taste worse than yeast strawberries, right? It's time for episode 57 of Toasting the Classics, The Caves of Steel. Welcome to Toasting the Classics. This is the podcast where we take something that people call a classic, drink something inspired by the classic, and decide if it's still a classic. I've got two of our repeat guest hosts, returning champions, back on the show this week. Who do we have? Uh, We have Bill Hodges here with us yet again. And we have Chris Gregg. See, now that's confusing. Everybody's going to think that that you guys are reversed because you didn't say each other. You didn't say your own names. That's oh. true. Yeah, we're, we're deliberately trying to confuse the audience. But for the record, I'm Chris and, and I'm Bill. Yeah. I am Dave MacArthur, as always. And we are on a book this week. It's mostly Bill's choice. Is that right? You, you know, know, there's actually kind of a story on how you started to read it. You know, it was interesting because I had initially started reading Foundation, also by Isaac Asimov, because of the show that just came out on Apple. I actually asked Chris. I was like, so what, which of the iRobots should I read or how should I, what should I do that, to get some sort of chronological order to it? And he said, well, I think Caves of Steel was one of your favorites. And it's also the start. When you say chronological order, were you figuring that all of Isaac Asimov's books, Foundation and the robot stuff is in the same universe and you should start at the earliest point in galactic history? Or do you mean chronologically within the robot books? I had intended it to be the start of the robot novels. I know their okay. iRobot is made up of a whole bunch of different stories, but I think the robot series is the better way to lead into the foundation because they are in the same universe. Just to keep the listeners up to date, we're doing the novel Caves of Steel, which is Isaac Asimov's book. He's famous for the foundation trilogy, uh, which has been turned into a TV series, I guess. Also responsible for the iRobot books, which were turned into a Will Smith movie that I don't think anyone saw, but I'm, I'm probably wrong. Probably somebody saw it, but that I, I saw it. And it I'll, I'll to come to it. Yeah. It, yeah, it was actually, I think, largely based on this book. When they did the movie, they went ahead and wrote something inspired, called iRobot, because iRobot was not under copyright, because there had been a previous short story by a different author under that same title. So they went ahead and wrote the film without having rights to the book and then shoehorned the stuff from the book in once they finally got the rights to the book when they were already in pre-production on the film. So Ah, from hearing that, I was not very impressed. That did not sound like that was going to be a good movie, but nor was I very impressed with the idea of like he wrote the robot books and then later decided it was the same universe as the foundation stuff and kind of shoehorned those things together too. I was a little underwhelmed by that writing process so i don't know maybe it works i don't know i read the foundation books the original trilogy i really like Mm -hmm. them but these this is new for me i've never done the robot stuff and i kind of like the uh the robot stuff a little bit better than much of the foundation because the foundation i I think of asimov is is kind of a big idea science fiction guy yeah Yeah, there's not a lot of characters in the foundation right and this actually has running characters and character arcs and so who who, uh do we want to go into some kind of a uh synopsis 
that's usually a disaster. Well, but, we can um, keep it short and sweet on this one, I think. The lead sort of protagonist is a detective or plain clothesman, uh, Elijah Bailey. And then okay. R. Daniil Oliva. Terrible name. Yeah. And the R is important because it signifies that he is, in fact, a robot. Right. Robot. Your first initial is R. You are a robot. And the conceit of the book is it is a police procedural murder mystery with uh-huh. a lot of sci-fi world building, some sociology, and kind of a far out ending, man. I definitely think the conception of the book was to have a hybrid, you know, like you said, like a crime novel in a sci-fi setting. And that was almost like the high concept of the book at the time. Nowadays, there's a million books like that, right? Like Altered Carbon, things, you know, there's a million, you know, Blade Runner. This is something that happens all the time today. But this may be, this may be sort of the first time that science fiction got a treatment in the detective novel. Asimov said he's basing it on Agatha Christie. I don't see that at all from having read Agatha Christie. I picked up a fair amount of that on this read thinking I actually have Agatha Christie specifically referenced in my notes because Mm. of the way he drops certain clues. Maybe we should finish the summary. Elijah Bailey gets handed the crappy job of figuring out who killed a spacer, someone from outside of Earth. Earth is made up of about 50-something giant cities with a population of 8 billion people. Uh, It's called the Caves of Steel because they're underground cities. People live like moles, never go out into the sun. That's a very stratified society. And the death of a spacer could have big political issues. The Uh, situation of the spacers on Earth, to me, sounded a lot like the way China would have been in the 19th century. With like little pockets of people from outside coming in and setting up these little green zones where the, the, the local people aren't allowed in and they're treated like lesser citizens. And I thought it was supposed to be sort of an allegory almost for some of those colonialist settings. The weird twist of that is obviously that everyone comes from Earth originally. Yeah, I don't know. I was kind of thinking maybe it's more like Africa, because if you think about it, everybody's originally from Africa. And then all of a sudden, all these people came back to Africa and started trying to be colonialists. There, So what's this? So there's a murder of a spacer, like you said. Mm -hmm. And our main character, whose name is Bailey. Elijah Bailey. Right, because Lige, the first time I saw the the name Lige, I was like, what kind of name is Lige? Which apparently has some meaning that that I missed. I get the Jezebel bit uh, with his wife, but I didn't understand why Elijah. I didn't read my Isaac Asimov's Guide to the Bible closely enough to be able to interpret. I'm I'm not a biblical scholar or anything, but he he does become kind of a true believer of man's uh, expanding outward as opposed to focusing inward on Earth recolonizing and and spreading out across the universe beginning as it were a foundation except that in that future earth is not i remember distinctly earth is not only not like the center of the empire it's forgotten as being earth as being the human homeland in the foundation series which takes place i I would say ten thousand years in the future of this so we've got a police procedural there's a murder he has to go into the spacer space town right Space Town. And the irony, I think, in Space Town is that it's actually just outside. It's just, yeah, outdoors. Apparently outdoors is a scary place. It it took me a while to catch on to, well, first of all, I didn't get what the Caves of Steel were for quite some time. I think you only, that becomes sort of explicit, I don't know, uh, 25% of the way into the book. I realized, oh, that's the cities or the Caves of Steel. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because in the beginning, there's a bit where he's talking about how he's never seen windows or hardly ever seen windows. He's read about them in a book. Mm Mm-hmm. 
yeah. some of that stuff kind of beggars belief. You know, you're like, why would people, I could see why people would eventually maybe not want to go outside. Have we gotten through the synopsis yet? No. Do we want to, do we want to spoil with the synopsis? I, I would say, I would say yes. The, the person who puts him on the case turns out to be the murder, the killer. The eventual killer, uh, Elijah's boss, was offended at the thought of a humanoid robot. Uh, his partner, R. Daniel, was made in the image of his creator, also, again, very biblical. So when his boss right. tried to destroy the robot, he actually killed the creator. Unintentionally. He, he did not intend to commit murder. but Wouldn't be murder in this case. It would probably be manslaughter if you're not intending to kill somebody. And you, If I were intending to, I don't know, destroy your car, I guess, and I accidentally killed you, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be manslaughter. It would definitely be. It wouldn't be an intentional hum- an intentional murder. Well, if your glasses fall off and I just I, I kill the wrong person. Killing the wrong person would be different than trying to kill a piece of property. He's trying to destroy under under law in this in this society. Destroying a robot is not a murder. Good if know. I'm trying to destroy a piece of like if I were trying to, let's say, break a statue and my okay. glasses fell off and I ended up hitting a person with a with a with a mallet and they died because I thought they were a statue. I wouldn't be guilty of murder. But I would go to jail for manslaughter or something similar to that, because clearly I've been pretty reckless about my behavior in that situation. Certainly that's to be chastised in some way. We can't go around sanctioning the, the wild destruction of statues in that way. Also, I think probably destroying a robot would probably end up almost being like murder, right? Well, they do actually talk about that in the book. Our Sammy is destroyed. Right. Um, Oloval does refer to it as murder, and uh, that surprises and also kind of offends, I think, Elijah Bailey a little bit. Yeah, it's clear that there's some slippage in the terminology, maybe not in the legal terminology, but definitely in the conversational. Well, I think spacers and humans just have different legal systems, too. So the spacers have an integrated society with robots as they have more rights. It's probably a different classification for them. They have a CFE society. I mean, carbon, carbon and iron. Oh, carbon slash FE. I was saying that out loud trying to think, does that sound like something? Because no, not really. It's just literally chemical symbols of the elements. It reads very oddly too. <laughs> it reads really, yeah. Well, some of this is, it's we're going way back here. This is, what what was the year on this? 1954? The serials were published in 1953. Uh, the last one came out in December and the novel itself was published as a summary of all of them in 1954. We're going way, way back in science fiction history here. Yes. So some <laughs> of this stuff, like for instance, calling it Space Town. If I were improving a role-playing game and I called something Space Town, people would be like, can you pause and come up with a better name than that? This is going a long way back. And sometimes you had to hit people over the head with stuff to make them understand what you were talking about. You really had to have a lot of clues. And there's quite a bit of what seems to me to be fairly original thought in this one. Not just thought, but concepts. Well, so the laws of robotics, we should definitely talk about those. Those are not original to this. They're maybe not even original to Asimov. They are definitely original to Asimov. They're they're Um, attributed to him, but he... It was him and Campbell. Right. he, He attributes some of the thinking to other writers as well, especially on the first law. But, you know, codifying them and giving them... A sentence that describes them is 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 his original work. Did you get the thing about how he refers to the laws within the world, what they're called? Uh, no, uh, please. They're, they're called the Asenian laws, A S E N I O N, and apparently that was a typo that one of Asimov's early editors put his name in something he wrote as written by Asenian. He put that in there as sort of a as sort of a hint of his own uh, authorship. 
That's funny. Yeah. Three laws of robotics. Do you guys think that would work? Well, I think that, I mean, if you continue on with the series, we find out that there's some ways of getting around the laws. Therefore, I think we kind of have to say, well, I mean, are the laws there and are the laws good ideas? Yeah. Robots shouldn't be killing people. People shouldn't be killing people. I thought the idea, one of the plot points in here, or one of the points in the mystery, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, is that it would be very difficult to program a robot to not have the laws because the laws have been within the programming of robots since the very beginning. And it's this huge industrial project to start over and reprogram a robot and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, man, that's really dubious, like that it would be so difficult to, to program robots differently. I understand the, the positronic brain does not really is not really analogous to computers in the real world. But as a person who's grown up in a world with programmable computers, it seems very silly that you couldn't just change the programming of the robot overnight. Like that does that doesn't seem difficult at all. That's it's one of those pieces hard. of technology that I think has not aged well. Right. <laughs> the positronic yeah. brain. The concept of programming taking time. It was true back then for sure. You know, by the way, before we get any farther. We're reading the Caves of Steel. What are we drinking? Steel Reserve. We're drinking the Reserves of Steel, right? The Reserves of Steel, yes. I sort of failed on my gather information check to try to get uh, Steel Reserve. Oh, well, we got the same. I'm impressed. Opposite coasts, by the way. I've got a can. He's got a bottle. I've got a can of Sapporo Reserve. Is that a malt beverage? Or is that I don't know. Can someone define reserve beer for me? I mean, that would maybe help. My, my theory was that perhaps that was going to be the same in some way. Oh, it, no, it tastes like a malt liquor. It's somehow your last option. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you reserve it because you I reserve it. the right yes. to. I reserve the, I reserve the right to uh, re- refuse service to anyone who's drinking re- reserve <laughs> beer. I think that'd be a good rule. Uh, I went into, I went into a Ooh. store known for like having a lot of wide varieties of microbrews and, and I asked because I couldn't find any malt beverages. You usually can't in places where discerning shoppers. Uh, Can they kick you out when you asked? That was kind of his point. Yeah, he was kind of like, well, you know, I have to say that that's not something we really get a lot of anymore. Yeah, <laughs> we, was like, we really don't you know? recommend that you drink that. <laughs> I, uh, I, I had to pick mine up at the local 7-Eleven. <laughs> at 7, well, 7-Eleven, they'll give you whatever you want. But yeah. Sell it. But it was, I couldn't get it anywhere else around here. You know, it's surprisingly balanced, but not particularly good. Very corny. What? what excuse me? What did you just the say? The beer. The beer. Not you. The beer. The beer. The beer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, good Lord. So what do you mean by saying it's balanced? Explain that. Kind of like the ESB we had last time. The uh-huh. hops and the, the bitterness and the... Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, I'm not, not, I'm not, getting... not too malty, but not too hoppy. Nothing's particularly forward. It's, I mean, the malt, the maltiness, the, the mop. Yes. I'm getting, I'm getting some corn and it tastes <laughs> pretty alcoholic. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds vile is what it sounds like, but. Well, I believe it has a mighty 52% rating on the uh, beer advocate. Woo. Out of a hundred. Uh, yeah. Okay. Wow. What, what comes in below that? Jeez. We didn't have a lot of time left when we chose the jinx. So, so we just sort of went with something that sounded like the title of the book, which is, you know, whatever, sometimes a good pun that, or if that's even a pun, I don't know if it counts as a pun, but I would say it's on theme. And I would also think that 
on earth they probably don't have fine alcohol they're drinking um i was not drinking really much i mean i didn't really at least in this in the case of steel didn't really come across or recall there was there was a reference to drinking because when he met his wife they were at a party at college and he mentioned how he started talking to her because it's nice to talk to someone early in the party before everyone gets into the punch bowl and gets lubricated by alcohol and starts talking to each other. He didn't say what it was they were drinking, but I was thinking to myself, that sounds like something he wrote without thinking about his setting at all. That sounds like something he wrote that was just a comment on what life was like in the 50s. I mean, did this world sound like a place where people would go off to college and drink from a punch bowl together? One of the questions I have is what type of government is Earth? They talk about a White House. They're set in New York City. Yeah, yeah Washington still has some importance, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also global because they talk about London and Moscow and other places around the Earth. And they actually say so New York really City good... is the capital. Maybe it's in Naked Sun that they say that. I didn't catch that anything be... about New York being the capital. I, I distinctly thought Washington was supposed to still be the capital of something. Right, because they have that expert come up. The FBI. It's not called the FBI. It's called the the TBI. That would lead me to infer that if it was once the Federal Bureau Bureau of Investigation and it is now the Terrestrial Bureau of Investigation, that there is some global government filling the place of the once federal United States government. And possibly some offshoot of the UN if New York is is the capital. Yeah, if, that's true. If New York is the capital and maybe it's the United Nations that's in charge because Earth has sent colonies out some some place in the several centuries ago passed, right? Yes. Am I getting my chronology more or less right? It's more or and less right. About 50 worlds. And it is definitely expected that Earth will act as a unit, right? It's not, they're not on Earth negotiating separately with the Soviets and with the Europeans and whatnot, or the Chinese or whatever. They seem to be, Spacetown is in New York. New York seems to be the, the point at which you'd come to negotiate with Earth. Yeah, maybe it's supposed to be some kind of United Nations. It's interesting to see how people on Earth live. One of the interesting technological changes is that most people eat some form of yeast. 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 So they have yeast strawberries and you know yeast meat and everything else. And people just subsist off that made in vat farms, which in, the, in 1953 is pretty... Shocking. I think it's, it's almost like an, an attempt, in my opinion, to get into this like almost dystopic idea that he's going with. Because this is the population, which is 8 billion, mm-hmm. you know, the, the population of the planet at that point, which interestingly is what we're going to re- be reaching here this year. Are you guys familiar with the Green Revolution? Oh, yeah. Like essentially 10 times, 100 times the crop yields that we had in the 1940s. He's writing like right before this giant boom. The, the industrial and, and I'm telling agriculture you, really just... If everybody was eating yeast and subsisting off yeast the way this is described, 8 billion people would not be a problem at all. You could definitely support way more than 8 billion people if they were willing to eat yeast. But like we, this was written basically before the Green Revolution? So was that yes. the case at the time? Yes, basically. It's written... Okay. 10 years before like a massive change in the amount of food that could be brought to the human population, which does not make, you know, the support, the support capacity of the earth is not limitless, obviously, but mostly the problem is the energy consumption of, of people on earth, not food. It highlights very much the total difference in the thinking about Malthusian population dynamics and stuff from what people were saying in the thirties and forties to what it's like today. It, it was a, it was a huge revolution. I mean, just just right there, the way Isaac Asimov is talking about an Earth of eight billion people, which like it doesn't even sound like that many people. I mean, that's a lot of people, but we're not gonna we're not gonna have to live like this to have eight billion people. 
not to the point where you have rationing and your your right. income and and housing level is dependent dependent on your value to society. I, right. I want to circle back to something Bill said earlier uh, sure. about it being a dystopian future, uh, and, and I can totally see where it could be. You've got people living in caves, never seeing the sun, very stratified society. But did it feel like a dystopian setting to you guys? Well, and I think that's that's the interesting thing apart it about it right is did it was that his intention so i don't know that it necessarily was but i think that's where he was getting to with that there was all this stratification and that was hard that would that would that's so beyond the scope of what somebody in the 1950s would be thinking as a ideal future what were they thinking about in the 50s as far as what the future was going to look like everybody was flying around and flying cars and you know as a reader this is a dystopic setting the setting just the setting to respond directly to what Chris said, but the writer doesn't paint it in such a, in such a bleak fashion. Uh, and I don't think for, apparently from what he said, this was not a dystopic setting for him, in his opinion. There were some things in his bio that, that referred to him being a claustrophile. Did you guys see that? Oh, no. Where he really likes the idea of living in a very small cabinet environment with all of his belongings. Like <laughs> essentially this blanket fort that I'm recording in would be Isaac Asimov's ideal apartment and it, he just didn't find any of that stuff depressing now i think me reading it i'm like wow i just this future is depressing this is not anywhere i'd ever want to live i think asimov almost thought he was sort of planning out like an ideal solution for population problems that this wouldn't be such a bad thing it's kind of like robert heinlein's work uh in those like fascist futures of starship troopers and stuff like that he wasn't painting it as dystopic he thought it sounded great to live in that fascist future yeah you know? and it really came through <laughs> yeah Definitely. And I think so, it comes I mean, through with this too. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it's, a, I think it is potentially a dystopian setting, but Asimov is way too much of an optimist to, to portray it that way. Right. It's not being portrayed as dystopic, but the elements of it, when I'm reading it, I'm like, this is not a world that I want. This is a dystopic world. I do not want to live in this world, especially the, the, the social hierarchy stuff, the C-class rating and stuff like that. And right. I read some things. There was a there was a, a National Geographic article about Denmark being the happiest country on earth. And they were talking about how wonderful it is that in your neighborhood, everybody has to get together to agree on every single project and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, that sounds like living in hell to me. I do not want to have to depend on my neighbors <laughs> at, like for every decision I make. <laughs> I do not want to live like that. Like, but I don't think they're unhappy with it. They're just different than me, you know? And I think that Isaac Asimov's world that he would like to live in is just very different from mine. Is his portrayal within this more of a utopia, utopian future for him, for like his, for his world? I wouldn't view? go that far. I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I think he's grappling with the problem of overpopulation at a time when intellectuals did not know what to do about the problem of overpopulation. And he's coming up with a workable solution to overpopulation, which to me would not be a workable solution. I don't think he's I don't think he'd be happy to live in this particular future. It's one of the one of the things I didn't understand is why is there no effort to control population? Why are they allowing the population if they're already regimenting people's lives like this? Why wouldn't you do like what China did and institute a one child policy or something? Population seems to be the problem, right? Maybe that's sort of a underhanded way for him to say that that's what's necessary is some sort of population control. It's possible. I don't think that's the true focus of the book. There's a lot going on. There's a, there's a, like we said, like there's some social commentary in the dystopic future. There's commentary on the silliness of like communist groups in the fifties getting together. 
they're sort of lampooned by this medievalist society that the wife joins, which sounds very much, again, they get together and they, they have refreshments and snacks at these gatherings. The speeches, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? They have refreshments and snacks all of a sudden? Nobody can eat anywhere but the communal kitchen, but all of a sudden you've got... It almost felt like just a slip up in the, in the world building, a couple, of those, a couple of those references. Well, if you want to get people to come and listen to your speeches, maybe refreshments and snacks is a good in, in, in inducement. It, it, it would be absolutely in this world. It absolutely would be. But it just seemed a little bit, it, it didn't seem like something that might be possible in this world. They talk about how, like for them being able to eat in their house, like they have that privilege as the classification of whatever they were at, the C5, I think. Their C five, yeah. So they can use a, uh, a a washing bowl in their in their own room, and own they can house. eat alone, <laughs> right? Three times a week or something, yeah. None of it sounded good. Th- there was apparently a little bit of actual animal protein available, which I thought was strange. Oh, you know what this book reminded me of? Actually, there's a lot of different things it reminded me of. Did you guys ever watch Alien Nation? That was a good show. It was no. kind of a good show. Weirdly enough, because that. The, the two cops, right? The alien cop and the, the human. It was cop. very much like this. It was yeah. a situation. I think it was in L.A. and it was about aliens had landed and they had their own town, kind of like space town. The main character, his job was working with a policeman who was an alien. It's some of the same dynamic that's going on. I'm pretty sure this book sort of inspired that. My take on this book is it's kind of an extended analogy for uh, desegregation. Uh, desegregation? Yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah, I, I thought that was in there. I, m- I mentioned that in my notes. Yeah. Uh, there's separate bathrooms for the different people and, and thinking that other people are unclean. And, you you know, when, when he goes into Spacetown, I almost thought it was more than segregation. It was like apartheid. It was like an even stronger form of segregation. I guess there are two elements there. There's the element with uh, robot integration into society, and that's desegregation. There's the tension between spacers and earthers, and that's really more like reunification after the Civil War. I was thinking the spacers and the earthers was the segregation. The The way that they treat earth people is sort of like, well, you know, like I said, like a colonialist type of thing, like the way... The way imperialist and colonialists would have thought of the local population or, yeah, or like a segregation situation. Or... And for context, when this was written in 1953, uh, that was very much on the mind in, in the United States. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Eisenhower had just been elected January well, of 53. Well, um, Brown v. Board is in 1954. 54, so. right. Uh, the Easter egg roll was open to black children for the first, first time in 1953. Uh-huh. Right, right after Eisenhower was elected, I believe Truman had issued an order in in the forties desegregating the armed forces, but Eisenhower came in and desegregated the entire U.S. government. It, it was very much on the mind. Oh, absolutely right. I remember thinking like that doesn't really seem like an argument that needs to be made, you know, like desegregation. But I'm like, well, this was written in 1953. It was an argument that needed yeah. to be made. This is amazing. Well before enough. Loving versus Virginia. <laughs> yes. Loving v. Virginia is 1970. 67. That, right. Well, no, the case was decided in 1970. It's seven years before I was born. It Good was Lord. illegal to to marry someone for a white white person, a black person to get married in the state of Virginia. That yeah. blows my mind. Whenever I think about whenever I think about civil rights, I always think about that. Like it seemed very much in the past to our generation, like when we were little kids, it did not yeah. seem like a part of life anymore. But it was very, very recent. Oh, sure. So, and the, um, you know, like the Pentagon has twice as many bathrooms as it, as it needs because it was built <laughs> yeah, during segregation. Sense. 
And it was built in 1940 or 1941, I think. So that does make sense. I think the plans were laid down then. I'm not sure it was completed till later, but yeah. Yeah, it was before Truman had issued that order. So so on that, so the spacers were also anti-having contact with humans because of the potential infection from, from the air that they're breathing and, and mm-hmm. just the close proximity of one another. Because yeah. when humans first colonized, they were very conscious and didn't take any of their disease with them, which was great because their planets don't have any, but that means they also don't have any antibodies to handle disease if they come back right. and yet the irony here and what i thought was a little odd is like they were talking about how like they offered Elijah an apple which he'd never had before and Elijah's comment was well gee i hope they washed it <laughs> right. right there would be no need for them to have to wash it because they don't well have no yeah. he's no he says i hope they washed it because he's never eaten anything that was grown in the dirt before Right. That's what he's well, talking exactly, about. Well, exactly. Exactly. But yeah. that's the, like, that's the, the sort of flipping on its head there of the whole, uh, of that whole uh, mindset. I love stuff like that. I love unintended consequences, like societal adjustments to unintended consequences of actions. I can eat, eat that up with a spoon. I love that kind of world building. It's pretty good. It's pretty rich, honestly, for something especially that was written as a short story. It's a pretty rich world. A lot of it is dated. I mean, this is 70, 80 years ago. We absolutely have to talk about the complete lack of any decent female characters in any Asimov book. So for for Asimov, I actually thought the wife was at least an attempt at a female character who had some agency and was part of the Yeah, but she wasn't interacting with any other women. There's also the bit where she comes in and she has to spend like 10 minutes redoing her makeup and stuff like that. It's pretty terrible. It's very surface level. She's kind of like a child in a lot of ways. It's just, there's no depth there whatsoever. And it, no, there's not. I mean, I don't remember there being any female characters in foundation. There are not. And I will tell you the, the TV show definitely made changes there. And there are many strong female characters there and, and it's better for it. Oh, speaking of TV shows, although I, I know it's originally a book, but this also reminded me of The Expanse. Yes. This is, there's a lot of like um, the whole Earth versus space thing. It's kind of turned on its head, right? Like the Earth is where people are sort of lower class and revolutionary and space is where things are perfect and, and beautiful and wonderful. And it's the reverse in The Expanse. I, I thought there was definitely some of some of this in that. I mean, this is this is a very influential work. Yes, I think it's very clear to see that as to whether I love it is a whole different conversation, but it is extremely influential. I caught I caught the word he refers to London and the large suburban suburbanization and growth of the London city as to as the sprawl. I think that might be the first time I've ever heard anybody use that phrase to refer to a city like that standard terminology in cyberpunk. Who would have been using that word before 1953 to refer to a city? I don't know. I, to me, that seems like an original usage, but I could be wrong. Perhaps in an ecological context. Like in an ecological context? Yeah, just in terms of sprawling out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So did the ticking clock of the murder mystery work for you at the end of it? I thought that was at its most Agatha Christie when he had to solve the mystery by midnight or Daniel would, his, yeah, his objective done was and... done. So he had basically two hours to solve the mystery, get a confession. And, I, I and... liked the idea, but I don't think the execution was very good because it was just all of a sudden a different time and it didn't seem to follow what was happening. He was talking 
And then all of a sudden they only had 20 minutes left. And I was like, you were not talking for an hour and a half. I, I thought it was an interesting device. I was like, oh, okay. So this is really going to cook for the last like 20 pages, which, you know, it did. It was, it, it was, it kept me focused. I was, I was definitely, but, I, but it also, I don't think it was executed very well from a pros standpoint. I was going to say, I think that probably all three of us have had similar conversations about how sometimes authors are nearing an end of a story and it just seems like they're like, Oh crap, I got to wrap this up. Oh, that happens all the time. Try reading it, Stephen King. Well, the perfect example. Heinlein. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is going this is going really well and then all of a sudden it's we're going to wrap this up here because I'm coming up on my deadline and I got to finish this book. Okay, I guess Heinlein well, has the opposite problem. He can't finish a book. It's it sort of balloons out of control. I think that's a common disease of authors who, like Chris said before about Asimov, who are really just kind of big idea guys. Stephen King books are not even really like a, so much like a big idea. The fun thing about The Stand, for instance, is just the setting. It's just a cool idea. It's a fun, it's a fun story to read. And the story, the, the narrative, the plot itself is just kind of thrown in there to justify the setting. And then it just kind of ends, you know, and you're like, oh, well, okay, whatever. Bang. One of the fun things about this book, I think, is that toward the end, you, you come to a realization that the murder mystery is not the point. The point is that the spacers are trying to rejuvenate humanity as a whole. Their 50-odd worlds don't colonize anymore because they live for 500 years. They have no disease. They have no incentive to go out and do anything more. Yeah. Humanity has turned inside itself on Earth and doesn't care about the rest of the world. And they're trying to find a middle ground where humanity has a way to sort of rejuvenate itself and reach out to the stars once again. Speaking of big ideas, that's it. <laughs> so they talk about this, but it seems to, so they do bring this up. But I don't think they answer the question to us, to my satisfaction. By that same logic, why the heck would anybody from one of these spacer societies agree to go live on Earth and deal with this issue? Either, either that same person would still probably go ahead and colonize the galaxy or that same person would not want to go to Earth because Earth is dangerous and you might die there. And I don't really know why these people that live for 500 years and have a perfect life are, are in Spacetown. Well, they do say it is a very low percentage of them that are interested in doing it. And they're not also interested in you know, like running off and starting their own colony. So I, you I think some small percentage of people would want to run off and start, you know, I don't know, it seemed like somebody would be like, oh, that sounds cool. I'd be kind of into that. I, somebody was colonizing other worlds i might i might think about that for a little bit i'd, I'd read the i'd read the brochure you know like <laughs> especially if you got 500 years to go you might get kind of bored after year 250 or so right, right. kind of want to go colonize another world did you guys catch on to how they persuaded elijah bailey that this was a, a positive thing i guess we're just throwing all spoilers to the wind but yeah, yeah let's just throw it all um, out there basically he has a shock which uh the shock he gets is when the robot opens up its arm and shows it its internal circuitry to him to prove that it's a robot, which I thought was in Terminator and in, and in Empire Strikes Back. We see we see that in both of those. Sure. Um, and I'm sure it was somebody was thinking about that when they wrote both of those. He gets such a shock from seeing that that he passes out. And under the guise of giving him a stimulant to wake him up, they give him a suggestive chemical of some kind. Yeah, they literally um, drug him. <laughs> which, which which drugs him into becoming enthusiastic about a very specific political <laughs> movement, which is, I don't know if I buy that there's a chemical that works that way, but whatever. That's that's what happens in the story. I don't either. That's it's very plot convenient, but it does tie neatly into all of his actions leading forward and all of the rest of the books because that yes he definitely takes off there. A, a couple of times he's talking to like random characters and he's like, 
I suddenly felt the need to proselytize about colonizing other worlds. And you're like, why? Why do you feel that way? What do you, that doesn't make any sense. No. It is really kind of funny when you realize exactly what's happening. Like, speaking of things that weren't anticipated by this writing at this time period. So we've got a whole lot of literature of the cyberpunk and dystopic future that postdates this book. It's not even so much the technological changes. A lot of it, like a William Gibson setting, always has an element of people's culture adapting to the new realities, new ways of germinating like new cultural ideas and people rebelling against the dystopic uh, societies. There's a lot of, and a lot of that is kind of like punk rock thinking, right? Like sort of like a tearing down the existing order and like gang culture and these futures, like an Akira and things like that. There's just so much Mm -hmm. of that. And it's, it's almost non-existent in this book. And I was thinking, wouldn't there a lot of people would be rebelling against this situation? And the only element of it that exists in this in the setting is the platform jumping game. Well, they talk a lot about rioting. There's rioting about the robots, but I'm talking about the right. I'm talking about rebelling against just the, the stratification in the society. The rioting that they were discussing actually was talking about that stratification and how there was this group of people who were like, we need to get outside. Like, we need to leave this bubble. These were the medievalists, right? They were talking yeah, about... Yeah, the, medie- the medievalists were, but I don't know if the medievalists are the ones that are particularly violent, except in response to robots. Robots are causing riot. Uh, the humans were, cause- were, were rioting against robots, but yeah. I, think there was, I think there was also... It, it seemed to... And, and maybe it came across... Maybe I'm... I, maybe this is my interpretation of it, but it was, was that they were also protesting this... The, the levels of, of that strat- social stratification. Right. I, I also feel like that might be a factor of uh, race riots, like an analogy for that. Uh, because the people that are rioting against robots are generally not portrayed in a very good light. But I think what Dave was talking yeah, about. Might- but, but race riots, like race riots that used to happen in the 19th century, like where it was white people, race, not like when when the police kill someone black and black people have a riot or like when Martin Luther King got shot and it was African-Americans having a riot, like the kind of race riots that used to happen where white people would suddenly kill all the black people like in Tulsa. Right. Yeah. But yeah. That's, when, when you say when you said race riots, I'm, I'm thinking as a later half of the 20th century person, I'm like, it doesn't seem like a but it, it totally is It's a very different sort of race riot than what we've seen in our lifetimes, which aren't really race riots. They're really more just civil unrest, I guess, or something. But I think what Dave is, is saying is that was commenting about before is this this was written in 53 so it predates rocket predates punk and it was written in the 50s in a very conformist society so you don't think of a lot of rebellion really exactly it's like a whole social revolution that happened in the 60s and 70s changed the way we think about how people would respond to social change and drive social change and yeah the 50s are a very placid time and especially like imagine isaac asimov's world not a lot of unrest in that society or i guess that's not really true but it wasn't the zeitgeist anyway do we know if asimov spent much time in england because i know even through the 50s i think they were still doing a lot of rationing there i actually know that isaac asimov would not have spent time in england he only flew on an airplane twice in his entire life uh once was coming back from hawaii i think after the war because he was afraid of flying okay uh, and then he did actually that's i take it back Later in his career, he ended up doing science fiction question question and answer cruises for people. 
and he he traveled on like the QE two and stuff like that as like a as like a sci sci fi writer in residence that would answer questions for people and stuff. That's, that's so he an amazing life. <laughs> but at this at this stage in his career, no, he would not have spent time in England. Okay, but I guess yeah. the concept of rationing would have been something that happened in World War II. Well, we had rationing in World War II, right? Yeah, so I think that would have been on his mind. In fact, that's interesting. I didn't really think of that, but yeah. So this is interesting. So Asimov and Kerouac were both at Columbia University. Kerouac and Asimov together. Wow. It makes sense. They would this would have been they would have been contemporaries like Sure. I just it, they have such different styles. It's weird. They're very different people. Kerouac represents the changes in society that I'm talking about. Like yeah, absolutely, yeah. Failing to anticipate here. Well, this is that's kind of my point. To what extent Asimov drawing off of any of that movement? at the time no no i think as i mean this is my my hypothesis anyway is that he's just from a completely different way of thinking about the world that there's always this there's always this give and take between the people that want to rush headlong into modernity and the sort of romantic thinkers that want to go back and i think asimov is imagining a society where the kind of apollonian like conquer, conquer the world with technology people have just completely won there is no backlash against modernity or, you know, not much of one anyway. It's it's pretty anemic, I guess, is what I'm saying. At the same time, that's like, that's what he's speaking to, or that's what I'm in, what I'm getting out of these folks who are like, we need to be able to go outside. Well, that's the medievalists, right? Yeah, exactly. But the medievalists seem to have only shown up very recently in this world and to have had nothing to do with the way that the world was constructed. And I guess and what I'm saying is you wouldn't get this, you wouldn't get a thousand years in the future and have a society completely created by technologists. And then suddenly somebody would think, hey, maybe we should still have windows. But it's not mm -hmm. necessarily like this fringe element at the same time, right? Like mm -hmm. you have the commissioner of police being bought into this ideology. Yeah, I think it's being depicted as kind of fringe, though, isn't it? Refer to it as fringe. They do refer to it as fringe, but I mean, that's that's way of just saying oh well they're just fringe so there's a lot of there's a lot of works of fiction and i wish i could come up with a good example off the top of my head what a dumb what a dumb example but short circuit do you guys remember <laughs> the movie short circuit johnny five, five is alive <laughs> yes number johnny five there's a lot of works of fiction like that where it's like robots or computers and essentially the the crux of it always comes down to that there's just something that computers and robots can't capture about humans war right? games yeah like in war games right and there's always something, and, it, and it's always kind of, it always strikes me as being kind of lame. And this one, what does he say here? He says, only a human brain could be curious. You could never have a robot be curious. And I'm reading that. I'm like, why the hell not? Why couldn't you program a robotic brain to be curious? Just the same as a human one. It seems counterfactual to the way Daniel behaves through the entire book. I don't know. Well, I don't understand it. I, I feel like there's always some insistent that there's, there's something magical about brains that can't be captured by a computer. And I'm never convinced by it. It's the example here. He, he does a pretty good job of, of not doing that through most of the book. And then all of a sudden he mentions that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What? Was that something mentioned from Elijah's perspective, from a character perspective, or was that just a definitive statement made? I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. Okay. I'm trying to remember whether it's Bailey. It's, it's not, it's yeah. I think it's Bailey. It's like his internal okay. point of view saying it. So that, that could I, be colored by his perspective rather than a, it, than it a declarative statement. It could be something other than what the writer is stating. Well, the way I was reading it is it was the writer's thought. So we didn't talk a whole lot about the, the three laws of robotics. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So the, the first law is that a robot 
cannot injure a human being or through an action allow them to come to harm. Uh, the second is that they have to obey orders given to it by a human unless it would conflict with the first law. And the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as it doesn't conflict with the first or second law. So do you know how much of a lawyer I am? Yes. The second I read those, I was thinking, oh, well, what you have to do is you have to define human. And apparently that happens in some of the later books. There's a whole civilization that decides that the, in, the, in those laws, human only applies to people like us. You can kill other humans. And I was like, yep, that's the first thing that occurred to me. I was like, that's absolutely yep. the way you get around that. Like, I mean, and there are examples in, in, his, in his works within iRobot with, the short, with, the, with some of the short stories that they, and for that matter, within the second book. One of the first realms where robots are going to come into like wide use is going to be in warfare. It's just one of the first places where you would use robots. And they're going to have to be designed to be able to kill people. I just don't think that these laws are going to be possible. Isn't that fascinating? That's where that's where we go with that. I don't know that it would be our society that would do it, but I feel like somebody somewhere on Earth is going to be in a war and want to use robots for it. I mean, drones. Drones, but drones aren't aren't completely autonomous killing machines. You know, they're not out there just choosing their own targets and killing people and stuff. But they sure as heck could. If you're like a country like Russia, that's on that's on like the losing side of a war, that'd be a pretty big impetus if you had the technological capability, which I don't think they do. You could certainly do that, and it would be, why wouldn't you program your robots that way? Did either so, of you pick up on the uh, proto-development of the zeroth law? I'm trying to remember. I, I've read about the zeroth law. The zeroth law is the one that's, I, I can't remember what it is. It, it, tell me what it is. It is that a robot may not harm humanity or by inaction right. allow humanity to come to harm. Fully agree with what I read about that one was it was saying that the problem with that is that humanity is such a vague concept. And I was I hundred percent agree with that. I don't think that one's workable as a law at all. Because what does that even mean? Well, you know? it allows for mo- more complex actions by main characters later in the in the series. That's essentially yes. what, why yeah. it's here. It's a writing device. I could see why it would be useful, but I just don't think it could be defined in any useful way for a robot. I mean, how would you, how, how do you even assess what would be good for humanity? Ah, uh, well, that gets into foundation where you have psychohistory. And right. another thing we didn't talk about at all was uh, Daniel Oliva, the, the main robot in the, in the series has a, um, some sort of emotion wave detector where he can detect a human's yeah. emotion yeah. and sense their feelings. Very Deanna Troy in Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, that's kind of a neat power. I like so he can that. actually tell when he is causing harm to a human. Oh, is that why? Yeah, I guess that's why he has it. Because it includes well, emotional harm. I mean, it's also pretty good for any investigator to have. And do we learn whether, throughout, do we learn whether that's something that has been applied previously? Or is that something within this sort of new prototype? I think it's definitely something in his advanced prototype. I don't think all all robots have this. Maybe all spacer robots too. Well, we know he's even among spacer robots, he's pretty singular. We know that. At this point, yes. We've been doing this for a little while. What do you guys say? Do you want to talk about the uh, the biggest surprises that we had? Sure. Has everybody read this before? No. You had not read this before? No. Well, I, I read it right kind of before we decided to do this. Okay. Yeah. All right, but Chris, you read read. this. I read this 30 years ago, yeah. Oh, well, okay. So that's that's a long enough gap that you might have had a surprise when you're reading it. Oh, this is this this is my first time reading it completely. And 
I think I was vaguely aware of this, or maybe it came up in a conversation maybe with you, Chris, a long time ago, but I was kind of surprised to find out that this is the same world as Foundation. It didn't really strike me as completely new. On a biographical note, and this is a really weird one, it struck me as very surprising. Did you guys know that Isaac Asimov was HIV positive? No. Uh, really? Yeah. He had, a chance, he had a um, surgery of some kind in the 80s, in the early 80s in New York and contracted mm. HIV. I was ready to blame it on the cruising. What'd you say? I was ready to blame it on all those cruise ships he was on. Not that kind of cruise ship, Chris. It was uh, I was just that was shocking to me when I was reading the book. I was like, wow! It didn't come out until after he died. His wife finally revealed the uh, that information, like to get it out there. But wow. Anyway, all right. So, what were you guys' big surprises? I don't know. I'd never read it before. I was definitely surprised at how different it was from the movie. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's I, very different. I'm one yeah. of the guys who read, who saw the movie, and that was like my early uh, exposure to Asimov. Okay. Well, that, you know, that can't, well, in what way? In what way was it different? Oh, it's just God. It was just so completely different. I mean, yeah. I think that's within the spirit of Biggest Surprise because it's kind of what I'm talking about by having that is that classic works often have some other impression in our minds than what they actually are when you go and read them or watch them or, or what it is. So, I mean, I think that that counts. If you saw a movie and it completely had nothing to do and completed and created a totally different impression in your mind of what this book was. Well, did Foundation guys... did that too. Seeing Foundation, the show, and then reading the book. So you saw Foundation, the show, before you read the books? Yeah. Oh, I, wow. I haven't, I haven't read, I hadn't read any of Asimov. Oh, I okay. read any Asimov. Okay. I, I will say, I a, think the show has some brilliant cuts. I think Asimov would be extremely proud, especially of the way they handle the emperor and the whole yeah. clone dynasty. It's brilliant the way they do it in the show. Yeah, I thought that was a neat idea. I haven't seen it, but I heard about that. I thought that was a pretty cool idea. What about and, you, Chris? Anything surprise you with this? A couple of things did. Uh, real quick, yeah. the movie was kind of like an action movie with Will Smith. Very weird. Yeah. Also, interestingly, I think it was Alan Tudyk's first big role because he was the voice of Daniel Olival in the movie. How does a person so, get typecast as robot voice? I don't know. It's weird, but it works. He's really good. <laughs> so in, in iRobot, right, Will Smith plays Detective Del Spooner. Detective Del Spooner? Yeah. So they recreated the name and they came up with Del Spooner? Yeah. This, this was the height of of uh, will smith's stardom so i yes, i think he just didn't want to be called elijah bailey it's like nah man it was so sad i Come went on. on we were at um universal studios we rode the uh, men in black ride watching it and like will smith was all over the place and i was like man i miss him being this charismatic person that like i really liked back in the 90s like <laughs> like he just turned into something completely different later on it's not quite as upsetting as the bill cosby transformation but not great. So um, what are we doing with this, guys? We got. Uh... Oh, sorry. I don't think I've actually given my surprise. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I thought you did. I thought you did. Go ahead. <laughs> I, what actually, did you think his a... surprise was? <laughs> Jehoshaphat. <laughs> I'd say it Jehoshaphat. Well, my first surprise was just how grating it was because it was serialized, I think, mostly that in every single one he published, he had to mention the glasses, which became a key plot point later. Uh -huh. Really grating when you when you know the final final end product, but my my real surprise was in researching this. I found out that the BBC did an adaptation in 1964 of this. Mm -hmm. Yes, Elijah Bailey was paid, played by Peter Cushing. If you have not pulled this up on YouTube, I suggest you do, because it's really interesting to see. They don't have many many portions of it. They don't have. I the was going to say they lost it. They did. 
but there's hope because I mean they lost hundreds of episodes or at least a hundred plus episodes of Doctor Who. Oh, I and was, found okay. them in Zimbabwe. In no, no, yeah, it was Nigeria, I think. But yeah, it was or something. Yeah, it might have been Zimbabwe. It was somewhere. No, you're Africa. right. It was Nigeria. I'm sorry. It was like I, I thought that was such a it? crazy story. They, it is. They used to just they'd record things and they would they would send them out to all the BBC subsidiaries all over the world, but they would just erase the shows. I can't it's believe so they used wild. to do that. How expensive was this magnetic tape that they were erasing their shows? Like, why didn't they? I think the bigger issue was they, they just didn't consider Doctor Who worth saving. I know. <laughs> you know? That's just crazy. I can't believe that. Just some that was a really serial. That was a really cool story. I remember when that happened a few years back. I think it was. But so, uh, so if you haven't seen it, there, there, there are about three minutes of it on YouTube. Totally worth watching. It starts with the murder, which is okay. on screen. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. Very nice. different. They have clearly recast the robot ex- expert as a as a woman in 1964. They even realized, no, there's too many dudes in this. So <laughs> totally worth watching. Very fun. Caves of sausage. <laughs> All right. So so what surprised you was the 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 adapt was this is a, a TV adaptation, not a radio thing. Yes, it was a BBC okay. TV adaptation of Caves of Steel, which is it's just wild that that exists with Peter Cushing. It's weird that you'd get Peter Cushing to be in something, but then just throw the tapes away. Like, that's so weird. Maybe he just right. wasn't as big of a star then. I don't, I, I legit don't know. Yeah, it's funny when you, um, something like understanding all of a sudden that a book was serialized. For me, if I can see behind the curtain like that on a book I'm reading or a movie I'm watching or something, it'll drive me crazy. Like, if I yeah. can see the author working, I'm just like, oh, I, the, the one of the Harry Potter books, I think it's the fifth one word had gotten out that she was going to kill a major character in the book and throughout the book she kept writing these things that sounded like one of the characters had just died but then on the next page it they just fell asleep or something it was driving me crazy every time i read it i was like oh this is taking me out of the story so badly i hate yeah there are fake outs in that i I think george martin kind of got in his own head after maybe storm of swords and started Uh doing a little too much to try and obfuscate the whole Jon Snow reveal the head right. planned. What are we doing here? How, how do we do it when we've got three people? We're, we're calling Bill. Bill's the originator, but I think we can all just vote because there's three people, so it doesn't matter. Who wants to give opening arguments? I'll go ahead and go first because you guys can overrule me if you feel like it. This is a this is a series that I really like. This is a, a book that I think sets a high bar in science fiction as doing it the right way. This is kind of peak science fiction, which outlays a future that I, I heard i heard science fiction i don't know if it was defined but it was it was supposed to be an element of all science fiction that you take a trend you see in the world today expand it into the future and then think about what would happen if that trend if that trend continued into the future and that's this is doing that this is taking the trends of overpopulation automation uh, all kinds of different things and extending them into the future and then just letting it play out. What would that world be like? Uh, it's doing all those, but it's also incorporating, uh, you know, like a societal impact because we're going back to my, my crazy theory that this is uh, a reunification of North and South and integration and desegregation. Oh, so no, now I see what you're, you're saying. This is like, so this would make like the spacers are like carpetbaggers coming to earth to like, essentially. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's an interesting, t- I mean, I definitely picked up on the segregation allegory. I, I, I was, I'm, I'm with you on that. 
I didn't. I wasn't thinking of the era of Reconstruction specifically, but okay, I I, I could think about that some more and maybe maybe do something with that. I know, I, I I know you love crazy theories. I guess that's mine for for the your half baked your half your half baked theory of the week. Yeah, yeah I yeah. love it. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Great. I mean, I was on the same sort of, I was doing some similar stuff with colonialism. To me, this is me arguing, I guess, in favor of the classicity of the book. I think there should always, if there's some interpretive value to this, that's, that's going to be, that's going to stand for me as being something that's probably classic. I mean, we can talk about different historical allegories and themes. There's biblical themes, there's technological themes, there's, there's a whole bunch of reference to like the, the Luddites in England, I guess, not direct references, but I was thinking about that, the breakers of the breakers of looms and things like that is very similar to these people rioting and destroying robots. There's a million different things. I don't know. I mean, my number one issue with this being a classic is it's super dated yes. in, in, a in a bad way sometimes. Not in the way like Charles Dickens is, but like some of the themes have become moot because of changes that have happened. It has um, the time machine problem in that it is such an urtext for the specific yes. genre in a lot of ways that you yes. can't see the originality of the work. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean, but rather like I read, we read the Time Machine, and I, I, I enjoy the Time Machine even to this day. I think, I think it's very, you can see that it's influential, and I think it, it retains some of its punch. So yeah, similar in a similar way. I think that's probably where I would end up ruling on this. Isaac Asimov not being capable of writing women into his books—that's a big deal—is off-putting. But honestly, there was still stuff in the '70s and '80s that people were writing that barely had female characters in it. So I mean, I mean, '90s and 2000s. Like, yeah. look at Entourage. I mean, it's crazy how well, except Entourage, I think, is actually supposed to be a male version of Sex in the City. It's supposed to be a male fantasy of buddy dumb and stuff. It's, Fair enough. That may, may not be the greatest example, but you know, like, I, th I think Entourage is Entourage is a clubhouse. It's like putting up a no girls allowed sign. It's, it's, it's doing it on purpose. I think Isaac Asimov literally just didn't think you should ever have women as characters, or it didn't occur to him that, that women could be. Contributive members of society. Right. Yes, exactly. Uh, I'm going to blame my lack of coherence on this uh, on the 8.1% of uh, Steel Reserve, which <laughs> I realized as we were talking. I will simply vote yes on this and okay. pass on to our next person. Well, I'm. I think I'm voting yes as well. So, Bill, you're just adding. You're just adding color to this conversation. All right, That's Bill. Funny. What do you say? Are we toasting? I. I mean, I appreciate a lot of different aspects of it. I also understand a lot of and agree with Chris on, on, I think the, the gender dynamics that, that come into play. Hey, I said the same of... thing. Don't Chris doesn't get his woke card punched and I don't, I, I said, Oh, I'm sorry. Were you woke too? My bad. Yes, okay. absolutely. Uh, <laughs> despite that um, element of, of Asimov's writing, I think that, uh, I think it, speak, it, sp it speaks to a lot of stuff that you guys have already talked about. I don't know if there's any, I don't know what else I can add to that other than and they, the class, uh, the class dynamics of it, I think are, are significant. So are we making this unanimous? I think I think it's unanimous. Okay, great. Yeah, I would recommend this book to somebody. I, I think this is a good one. Um, I hate my cover art. Do you guys have the bad cover art with like the smoldering, handsome version of uh, Bailey on the cover? And is, is that what your book looks like? I don't know. I got a Kindle Kindle book. I can send it, you. What it I have. it looks like it looks like a romance novel where one of the guys has a robot arm. It's it's very off putting. Mine is also electronic, but I'm dying to check out the cover right now. Do you have a Do you have a physical copy of the book, Dave? I do, I do but it's not actually with me. I, I didn't. Uh, it's, it's filed away already in my library somewhere. So it looks like we're toasting. Um, cans up. Are you guys. Oh, you guys are actually Hands. drinking out of glasses. Isn't that Isn't that? I'm not. Awesome. This is a can. 
Oh, okay. I, yeah, me too. I have a legit glass, but the, the beer itself came in a bottle. So you I feel 40. Chris, is that a plastic bottle? Is that a plastic? It is a plastic 42 ounce of uh, steel reserve. Yeah, I got a plastic 42 bottle of 42 ounce bottle of um, OE because I thought that would be kind of close to steel reserve, but I ended up just drinking the Sapporo and I'm probably glad I did. Yeah, I am feeling it. Wow. All right. Well, it's Friday. It's Friday. You ain't got no job. (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, you kind of, I mean, I can't. Uh, well, you do have it. You do have a job. To, yeah, and you guys have a job for that matter. You don't have a job to go to tonight. <laughs> Not tonight. <laughs> you got us to do too. All right, gentlemen. Thanks for com- thanks right. for uh, doing another episode of Touching the Classics with me. I really appreciate it. We got uh, Chris Gregg in the house. Say good night, Chris. Good night, Chris. Bill Hodges. Say good night, Bill. Good night, Bill. And uh, I'm Dave MacArthur. Thanks for listening again, and we'll see you next time. We have not quite decided what we're going to be doing on the next uh, guest hosts episode of toasting the classics but thanks a lot everybody peace out that's it for episode 57 of toasting the classics for those playing along at home tune in to find out next time what we'll be drinking for our discussion of the ensemble war movie the longest day if you'd like to get in touch please send us an email at toasting the classics at gmail.com send us show ideas comments complaints and let us know whether you think the world of caves of steel counts as a dystopia check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on twitter at at reactivenuisance Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.